Welcome to AZMCAST, the competitive emergency medicine podcast. Our goal on AZMCAST is to demonstrate the knowledge, skills, and the approach to help you, the listener, be a top-notch emergency provider. Our panel of emergency specialists will go head-to-head as they navigate a case from the ring down to the workup to the dispo. Panelists will be awarded points for their quick wit, prioritization of tasks, and their clinical application of evidence-based medicine. However, they will lose points for weak arguments that rely on experience-based medicine and the use of banned, unhelpful jargon like gestalt or high index of suspicion or just because I feel like it. The panelists with the most points at the end of each episode will have free reign during the art of EM to rant about whatever aspect of EM is near and dear to their hearts at that given moment. We encourage you, the listener, to pause the podcast at each segment and consider your own approach before going on with the discussion. And our hope is that you will develop a prioritized, evidence-based approach to emergency medicine that will carry you into your next shift. And now, on today's episode, we present for your edutainment, The Ringdown. A 64-year-old male brought in by ambulance for cardiac arrest, no vital signs given. But before we get started with the case, let's introduce our panel and give you, the listener, a chance to put yourself in their shoes and consider how you would prepare for this case. Before you start wondering if you're listening to last month's episode that I just mistakenly posted again, this is an all-pharmacist session, and we have three of our excellent emergency pharmacists uh, who are here joining us. And we're going to talk just about the drug aspect of cardiac arrest. Dr. Chris Edwards is an assistant professor in the College of Pharmacy at the University of Arizona and a clinical pharmacist in the ED. Welcome, Chris. Thanks. Good to be here. Uh, Dr. Daniel Gerald is a clinical assistant professor of pharmacy, also a clinical pharmacist in the emergency department. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Aaron. Happy to be here. And lastly, Dr. Kate Maurizio is a clinical pharmacist, also in the emergency department. You know and love all three of them. Kate, we are so excited to have you. Excited to be here. Awesome. So the case again is a 64-year-old male brought in by ambulance for cardiac arrest. So this patient is coming in uh, by ambulance. It hasn't really hit the emergency department yet, but everybody is running around in a flurry. And you being on shift as the clinical pharmacist are naturally going to tend towards the airway or maybe chest compressions, the defibrillator, right? No, you're going to go for drugs. So you're going to be grabbing all the drugs and getting everything ready. So I'm going to ask first, as a pharmacist in the emergency department, what is going through your mind uh, when uh, that page comes out across uh, our phones? Honestly, I with these very vague page outs, I kind of grab everything and just wait for the story to hear what's going on. Um, no vitals is always concerning, obviously, but if they're in cardiac arrest, I wouldn't necessarily expect any. So getting all the drugs that we have available to us and then just anticipating and waiting to hear what the story was. Yep, that's uh, my practice as well. So, you know, unknown history, don't know anything about the patient. I'll typically grab uh, a code tray and I think we'll talk about what's in there in a little bit. Uh, I'll grab an RSI kit just in case it's needed. Um, and then the other things that I'm looking for are 
um, pumps and channels. So if we need to give any sort of an IV infusion, um, we have to have vascular access, the drug, and a way to give it. So I'll, I'll make sure that there's a pump and channel in the room. And then I'll, if I'm feeling optimistic, I'll grab stuff for post-resuscitation care as well, maybe the things to make an epi drip or something like that. Nice. Yeah, I'm going to grab all the same things that I've already mentioned. Um, I tend to be with little information, more of a minimalist. So I tend to just bring the coach tray, RSI box. Um, the other thing that's kind of dynamic that I'm thinking about in my head is, do we have a current, current uh, drug shortage or availability of a product? So for example, we may not always have the bicarb uh, pre-made syringes. So if I need to get extra um, equipment for that, whether it be syringes and needles to draw it up during the code. So I'm trying to think of what I can bring that will give me five to 10 minutes where I don't have to leave the room to make sure I don't miss anything important when that patient shows up. Excellent. Uh, because as we're kind of going in from the physician side, we're just assuming all of these things are there. And when we call for something, it's going to be slapped into our hand, uh, but there's a lot of preparation that comes through with this. It's not just, all right, give me the drug and I'm going to give it intracardiac every time. Um, so Daniel, you mentioned, uh, you're going to grab, you mentioned you're going to grab the code tray. What is in that code tray? Because as a wannabe helpful attending before you guys show up, I might wander over to a code and assume your role. And then, you know, I can hand people boxes of stuff, but it's more when it comes time to mix some of the bags or something that I go, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. So what's in that tray that we should know if we get assigned the role of meds and uh, just because we're there to help out. So pretty much anything um, that you would typically use for a cardiac arrest is gonna be in there, including epinephrine. Um, you're also gonna have a lot of the things for your potential reversible causes, your H's and T's. Not everything will be in there for that, but most of the things that can be done easily will be in there. You're gonna have a couple bags of fluid. Um, you know, One of those is used to make drips. Uh, the others are more there for like fluid resuscitation. Um, and then you get some other weird things in there that aren't standard for the code, like magnesium, adenosine. Um, but in general, it's going to be most of the things you're going to use for the cardiac arrest and the H's and T's. Great. Did he miss anything, guys? No? Points no. to Daniel. Nice. Um, all right. And then uh, you mentioned the RSI box as well, Chris. That's what you were grabbing. What's in this RSI box uh, that we're going to be grabbing for? Because that's probably the more common thing that we're going to be uh, we're going to be grabbing in the ED before the code carts. Fortunately, is we're probably going to be able to RSI them maybe to prevent a code. What's in that box that we need to be aware of? Hopefully, we can prevent a code and not cause one. Uh, there are a few different things that you could potentially have in your RSI kit at main campus. We have. Um, one sedative option, that's Atomidate, uh, a couple of paralytics, succinylcholine and rocuronium. And then uh, we also have pre-made phenylephrine uh, syringes. We would prefer to have epinephrine uh, sticks pre-made, but they have such a short uh, expiration date on them from the manufacturer that uh, phenylephrine just makes a little bit more sense. Uh, and that's just in case the patient experiences any perintubation hypotension. Great. And then Kate, I'm gonna ask you, uh, just not naming everything, but uh, at other institutions where we don't have the benefit of glorious ED pharmacists, we just have inpatient pharmacy show up with this mm -hmm. giant cart that just looks <laughs> like they're selling stuff at a carnival. Uh, but what is, what is in that cart that we wouldn't have in the code cart or RSI? And certainly not like all-inclusive, but what kind of things do they bring down that we wouldn't necessarily just have in our standard code carts? To be honest with you, I... 
use it so infrequently, I can't tell you specifically, but obviously everything in the code cart, but also other drugs. I've heard that um, it basically stocks everything that you can use to resuscitate any patient. So including steroids, um, larger bottles of some of the code drugs that we use. So atropine, epinephrine comes in 30 mil vials. I know that's in there. Um, I think calcium gluconate might be in it too. So things like that, just various formulations of what we already have and then additional medications too. Excellent. Since you got the harder one, you get extra points. So, <laughs> um, so uh, we've got the code cart ready. We've got some of the uh, medications that we think of. And then Chris, you alluded to, there's things that you're grabbing that are not pharmaceuticals, but they are medication related. So you said channels, you said flushes, what other things um, are you grabbing that are pharmacy related, but not strictly pharmacy? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a big proponent of the pharmacist sort of being involved in every aspect of the medication use process, right? So part of that is, you know, chatting with the, the physicians in order to come up with a good plan. Uh, part of that is being able to get, you know, medications compounded into the bedside quickly. Um, but even if all those things fall into place, if there's no way to give that drug, um, it doesn't really do the patient any good, right? So I'm also looking at the administration piece of it and making sure that we have everything we need to give uh, that medication to that patient. So if we're slamming code drugs into a patient, um, I'll make sure that we have uh, adequate flushes so that we don't run into any compatibility issues with our probably one or two lines that we have in the patient. Uh, as you mentioned, I'll make sure that we have a uh, uh, smart IV pump and, and channels, uh, as well as the tubing for those to make sure that we can uh, administer any IV infusions that we may. Um, I may grab a pressure bag if it looks like it's a, a volume issue and we wanna make sure we're getting volume into people quickly. Uh, and then just depending on how the resuscitation attempt uh, goes, I may grab other things, uh, kind of depending on if we get them back or not. You mentioned intracardiac epi. So depending on whether it's a trauma-related code or not, um, I don't think it's a bad idea to get intracardiac syringes, which um, I don't necessarily think, I think the jury's still out on the exact size that you want, but I know the larger the gauge, the less ideal it can be. So that's just one additional thing that... I'll kind of keep in the back of my mind, depending on how it goes. The only the larger thing, the gauge, the bigger the hole. Yeah, the um, only thing I'll mm -hmm. comment on that yes. is, I'd say in my practice, I've probably seen intracardiac epi done 20 to 30 times, and I've almost always put an 18-gauge needle on it. I've never had a trauma attending say anything about it. The only person who's ever said something is like a trauma resident. Hmm. So okay. I, I think the gauge matters less, but to me, I don't know, it's a big muscle, so I tend to use a big gauge. So very dramatic and so the larger the mm -hmm. smaller needle is less dramatic i think if you're going for drama you need to go for the big needle but um, <laughs> sure, it's really i just long. use blunts and no, i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> but but, uh, but what about for the intracardiac epi no i'm just teasing <laughs> uh, the other thing i would add to um it's medication related but it's not a medication or labels it seems stupid mm -hmm. but uh no. there's nothing worse than drawing something up and you're like I'm going to hand this off into this chaotic room and hope like heck that somebody knows what's in it. Um, so much better to just put a label on it. Yeah, I think totally. I uh, always tell the residents that we have, we're pharmacists. We do not participate in medication area errors ever. Um, I can't emphasize labeling drugs appropriately, especially in high-risk situations like that. Yeah, labeling drugs, uh, mm -hmm. the, uh, you know, even propofol. To label propofol seems 
silly because it's a big white milky liquid, but you know what? Label it uh, because some of the worst medication errors I have seen and maybe been a part of have been when you thought you were giving a flush, but that yeah. flush was not a flush. That was your medication that was drawn up in a saline flush syringe. You have to find a very reliable way to differentiate your medications, especially with the hectic nature of a peri-arrest or a full cardiac arrest. Um, and I will also make a plug that if you are giving medications, especially if you're doing anything with sharps, you are in charge of your sharps. Do not mm -hmm. let someone get stuck by a sharp as you're trying to uh, resuscitate these patients. Yeah. So. And even, I mean, you mentioned it's silly with propofol, but it's probably the way we think about medications versus other um, practices, but even knowing that it's 10 milligrams per mil is really helpful. Um, I've heard many residents think that they gave a certain dose when it actually wasn't just because they don't know because they never see it and they don't have to necessarily all the time know what the concentration of the actual medication is and what the formulation comes in. And of these drugs that are in the code car, which of these are pre-made, ready to hand off, ready to give, and which ones need to be mixed beforehand? Uh, because I was a little surprised when I first started doing these of like, all right, there's sticks, uh, ampules, there's like pre-measured out, uh, ready to give, and then there are some vials that need to be mixed. And the vials freaked me out. And I was like, nope, nope, not doing that. That's a nursing, that's a pharmacy thing, but it's well within our ability as long as you know what you're doing. So which ones need to be pre-mixed and which ones are ready to go? I think it kind of depends how you look at it. Technically, the ones that are you know pre-made in the boxes or the pre-made syringes are going to be your epinephrine, calcium chloride, sodium bicarbonate, dextrose, naloxone. Um, those are going to be your most common one, atropine as well. Um, but I have seen a lot of providers who don't have a lot of experience actually preparing the medications. It actually takes them longer to use those than to draw vials in a separate syringe. So even though some of these are pre-made, if you're not used to it, it can take some time. There's a little bit of a learning curve to do it quickly. Um, so I just encourage people who haven't done it, go ahead and try to do it during a code if you don't have the experience, because it can take 30 to 60 seconds if you don't know what you're doing. With um, the sticks. Yes, with the sticks. What have you seen people do? And I'm uh, curious to hear from all three of you. What have you seen people do when they grab these sticks? Uh, <laughs> Potentially humorous or dangerous. Yeah. The most common one I see is there's usually one side that's um, the side you want to open it on. And there is a designated spot that says open here. But inevitably, <laughs> more than 50% of the time, they open it on the wrong end. And then they try to dump the syringe out and it, it just doesn't come out. Um, so that's probably one of the most common ones. And then the other common one is they pull it out and they're like, I don't know what to do now. Um, I don't know which is the end I use, which end do I pop off? So I would say those are the, the two common ones that I see people screw up. The other one that I've screwed up, I haven't seen anybody else do this, but um, when I was very, very early in my career, I, I was putting together one of those pre-filled epinephrine syringes and <laughs> you just screw them together. And uh, I, before I was a pharmacist, I was a carpenter. So I want to make sure that thing was really tight and I kept cranking <laughs> on it. And then like half the dose ended up shooting across the room. It just needs to be finger tight. You don't have to get too crazy uh, cranking it together. So. I remember doing that too. And then it's Incredible. always kind of funny if we, if we, if I walk into like carnage after the fact, then the boxes are just like torn apart. People didn't know how to open them, but like, I don't know how you would know how to do that. <laughs> what? 
I said there's teeth marks on them as people are trying to, you know, for the love of God, get this thing open. It's, it's, it's crazy when you kind of like, uh, especially like now I've been doing this for over a decade. And so like you do all these things, you step even slightly out of your wheelhouse and you go, Whoa, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. You know? So like, I really encourage those of you that are residents and even those of you that are new faculty, like ask how to do some of these things, ask how to silence the beeping, uh, Alaris pump, ask, yeah. uh, you know, how to actually push some of these meds like dextrose or sodium bicarb that are in giant ampules and your fingers get sore trying to push these things in. Like there are tricks that people know how to do so that they don't waste it so that they don't blow lines and such. And then the, the one thing I'll add on, on this discussion, and it kind of goes along with, you know, if you're still in a learner role, definitely learn what things are available on the code cart. And, and I'd like to highlight specifically epinephrine. So uh, we started out by talking about what things are pre-mixed and what things are ready to go. And one of the, I think, more common errors that occurs during resuscitation attempts is they tend to occur with epinephrine. So in our, even in our code cart, epinephrine comes in multiple different concentrations on the cart. So there's a one milligram per mil vial, um, that is super concentrated epi that's there for anaphylaxis and is really should be used for IM use only. Um, and then there's also the one milligram per 10 mil pre-filled syringes. So that's your cardiac arrest dose epi. So you'll give that whole milligram IV uh, during cardiac arrest. And then there's push dose epi. So push dose epi, I think a lot of you guys are probably pretty familiar with it, but that's different than either of the two concentrations that are readily made in available in the cart. That one actually needs to be made by serial dilution using the one milligram per mil, uh, sorry, one milligram per 10 mil epi. You take one mil of that, add it to nine mils of saline and give you a, a, to give you a final concentration of uh, 0.01 milligrams per mil or 10 mics per mil. So you're really diluting that down and, and it's very different than the code dose epi. So one of the errors that I've seen happen um, is somebody grabbed one of those pre-filled syringes of epinephrine and gave a mill of it thinking that it was an epi, uh, a stick of epi or push dose epi, and they ended up getting 10 times the dose that they thought they were getting. So just be really careful with those. Epi is a big tenfold error problem. So mm -hmm. thanks for highlighting that, Chris. And I've seen someone actually try to make push dose epi, but they did it the opposite. They actually opened up the ampule, the one milligram yeah. per one ml, and diluted that down. And I said, what are you doing? You're making code dose epi. And they go, no, this is the push dose epi. I go, no, no, it's not. <laughs> Made them dilute that down again. Um, and so yeah. you've got, just to reiterate, to make sure everyone has heard this, if you've got the glass ampule, which is one milligram per ml, it's made to be drawn up with a needle and administered with a needle, not administered into the IV. That is way too much epi at one time. That's the high dose epinephrine that we used to give in cardiac arrest that might get your heart going again, but won't make you survive. It actually has a worse survival rate. Um, and then there's the uh, code dose epi, which is one milligram per 10 mLs. Uh, which is going to be given IV, and that's going to be your cardiac arrest dosage when you give epinephrine. And then there's diluting that down again by 10. So one ml of the code dose epi into a 10 ml flush, which is then going to give you 10 micrograms per ml. And that is your push dose epi. 
So it's going to be a thousand micrograms per ml for the code dose for the anaphylaxis, a hundred micrograms per ml for the code dose, and 10 micrograms per ml for your uh, push dose epi. So points to everyone because uh, you all taught me that and I actually remembered it. So I'm proud of me and I'm even more proud of you all. So okay. I'm proud of you too. You're deputized as a pharmacist now, Aaron. <laughs> One last question I wanna ask is um, as clinical pharmacists, uh, Chris mentioned I'm watching the resuscitation to see what else I can add. What are you watching for the resuscitation to say, I'm gonna anticipate this is gonna happen next, or I should get these things ready. What are you watching us do or watching the nurses do or the medics do to say, oh, I know what's coming next? I'm just looking for an opportunity to make a horrible joke. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> oh, I <laughs> Okay, real answers. I, I tend to, I'm the observer, so I'm looking at all the vitals, seeing what is happening, watching the time. Um, I think one of the things that we really can help with is monitoring the time, how long it's been since the last drug, and then just asking questions, uh, asking what they think they want. And usually, and cat's out of the bag, usually if I'm asking a question, it's because I think that we should do it. I just try to be a little more polite and less demonstrative about it. So, yeah. um, <laughs> passive aggressive, aggressive. <laughs> right. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I'm pretty direct, but other times, um, but again, it, I, I don't want to sit here and say there's a lot of data for any of the things that we do necessarily, but I think it's because there isn't a lot of data really, it, it doesn't, I mean, mm -hmm. Any suggestion is worth something. Someone who's coming through that door without a pulse, they're dead either way. So really the only thing that we can do is help them. So up and coming um, juniors and seniors, if you hear your pharmacist or your nurse <laughs> or your paramedic say, hey doc, I think you might wanna consider you should do that because I guarantee you they've been doing this longer. They've got a good idea. They've been watching. Listen to the people in your team. You may be running the code, but you may. Uh, that doesn't mean that you are the best person to make all the decisions. It takes a team, listen to what mm -hmm. your team says. It doesn't matter what their training is, especially, I'm gonna give a shout out to our paramedics. Many of our paramedics worked in the field on rigs for years, decades even, and now they're in the ED and they have had this experience running codes with far less. So pay mm -hmm. attention to what the people in your team are telling you to do. All right, yeah. um, so uh, the patient, that's right. We have a patient in cardiac arrest. We almost forgot about him. So he's here, uh, shows up. He's unresponsive. He's receiving bag valve mask ventilations and chest compressions and appears to have PEA on the rhythm strip that is handed over. So what are you three listening to from EMS's handoff uh, in order to figure out like where we're at and what, uh, what meds you're going to be given next? What are you listening for? I think for me, I'm listening uh, to hear any story, what were the uh, events leading up to the cardiac arrest, if we have any other information. Um, did they have bystander CPR? How long were they down for? What meds did EMS give? Um, all of those are going to kind of pinpoint where I think we are in the stage of therapies, and that'll help me determine what we should be um, doing next. Like if they've given a bunch of epinephrine already, yeah, we're probably going to continue that, but I'm, I'm looking at other potential things at that point, because obviously that's not mm -hmm. what's bringing them back. So is there something else we can identify or do that will, that will help? 
basically the same. And then I'm listening for any mm -hmm. um, changes to the rhythm that the patient may have had. You know, did they ever go into a shockable rhythm? Were they shocked? Did they get any antiarrhythmics? Um, those are really the, the big questions that I'm looking for. In, in addition to stuff that Dan mentioned, listening mm -hmm. for any stories so that we can identify any potentially reversible causes. Great. Time of last meds, time of last administration. That's always important because that that code doesn't start over once they hit the door. It's ongoing transition to yeah, our hands. So oftentimes as they're, you know, when they when EMS pulls in, and this is just practically speaking, this is no slight to EMS, but as they pull in, chest compression quality might go down. Uh, last medications are no longer the priority. It's get the patient into uh, the ED. Uh, so when we had our, our discussion with our uh, physicians the last month, um, most everybody agreed, probably it's time to get some more meds by the time you reach the ED, because that's probably been about two minutes or so. So uh, you can all say it in unison if you'd like to. What's the first drug you're going to be handing off when this patient shows up? Happy. Happy. Not, not that I necessarily agree, but yes, it will be. <laughs> Oh, interesting. I do high oh. dose happy. I'm just kidding. Happy. Expand on that, Dr. Gerald. So I, I think we're just so used to giving epinephrine for cardiac arrest. Um, and ACLS kind of gives some recommendations on it, maybe reasonable. They've actually increased their um, level of recommendation in the last couple of years to make it a stronger recommendation. Um, but since the evidence isn't that great, I, I don't feel strongly about using epinephrine, but because it is so culturally ingrained in us, um, I think we do it across the board until we can get more information to figure out what's really going on with the patient. Oh, I've been, I've been waiting for this one. So <laughs> you know how when neurologists and ED docs look at all the stroke literature, they have very different interpretations of the same studies. I think, uh, uh, Dan and I, we've talked about this extensively, but we we have very different interpretations of the study that that led to that the increase in the grade of the ACLS recommendation regarding epinephrine. And that was the, the paramedic three trial that came out a couple of years ago. Uh, basically, it showed that there was an increase in ROSC and survival to hospital admission, but no difference in uh, neurologically intact survival. So I look at that and I say, my goal is to get people back, right? Like, I want to achieve ROSC in the ED. So epinephrine helps me to do that. I'm going to continue to follow ACLS guidelines and give epi every three to five minutes. I think Dr. Gerald looks at that and says, well, we're not doing him any good. I'll let him speak for himself <laughs> here, but uh, I, I'm guessing your interpretation is a little bit different. Well, I, I think it depends. It's I think there needs to be some shared decision-making, but when someone's in cardiac arrest, you can't really have that shared decision-making. So I understand using it. Um, in that same trial, they actually did a survey of... Um, the community and they asked them what they valued most as part of the resuscitation, if it was the short-term heart survival, if it was their overall survival, or if it was their neurologically intact survival. And across the board, they all said what was most important was their neurologically intact survival. So the most important thing to our patients is not the thing that we're actually giving them with epinephrine. So I think you can look at this two ways, either we're keeping corpses alive longer, which causes more resource use in the hospital, but it gives families the opportunity to say goodbye. They get to have that closure. Um, and so I think that's kind of the balance there. And it's, I don't think there's a right answer for each specific case. Um, it's just a much more difficult, um, I think, ethical question to answer. I think that's an excellent point uh, with uh, what are your outcomes? Uh, because mm -hmm. if we get a heart beating again, is that really a win uh, if they end up uh, staying a long time in the hospital. We had this discussion with our trauma team 
about how, you know, the for hemorrhagic shock, a trauma code that's been going on for longer than 10, 15 minutes in the field has a near zero survivable outcome, let alone neurologically intact survivable outcome. So their opinion was if we get this patient back with by using filling their veins with epi, well, now they're obligated to take this patient to the OR and to X-lap a dead body uh, in, their, in, in their opinion. Uh, that was, th this was just a few of our trauma doctors I was talking with, but that becomes, you know, are we doing the best thing for the patient or are we going through the motions? Um, so Kate, you uh, get to be tiebreaker on this paramedic three. Uh, and, uh, you know, what are your thoughts? I mean, when we're doing this yeah. and you're just given stick of epi after stick of epi, what are we trying to accomplish? Um, so I'm going to take the compassionate mediator route, um, and maybe politically correct, but I really agree with both, both sides. So I think kind of tying the two together, I, I, we know that epi increases coronary perfusion. We know it can increase anoxic brain injury and worsen those neurologic outcomes. However, I think it is really important for families to be able to say goodbye to their loved ones. Um, and a lot of times I think giving them tons of epi to keep their heart beating so they have the opportunity can potentially, you know, impact them and their mental health and stuff. You know, death is something that we just brush aside. We see it every day. And I, I think it's important to be reasonable with our <laughs> utilization of epi and what we're trying to achieve. Um, and we know it gets ROSC. We do. It, it gets that heart beating, whether it's lower high dose epi, we know it can get a patient's heart beating. And sometimes that's really all you're trying to do for the patient, the patient's family, at least. So, so points down for not being the tiebreaker that I needed you to be. <laughs> um, okay. So if you really want me to pick a side, I would say just give Epi, get their heart beating. Yeah. However, I will say that was such a great, like, well thought out, like, <laughs> Backpedal, backpedal, backpedal. It's not that easy. So points back. Yeah, for it really. Taking yeah. the, not, not so much the, uh, well, here's just what the evidence says, but you got to put it into context. So I appreciate that. I have one, one more thing to add here, just because I have this uh, bias. I'm never in a code saying don't give epi. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if I have a provider that's, uh, that doesn't call out epi or they're not wanting to use epi, I'm fine. If I just want to sit at that code tray and protect anyone from using any of the drugs in there, I'm fine with that too as the pharmacist. Um, all right. So if you're giving your epi, how frequently are you all dosing your epi? Every three to five. I stick with the guidelines. Yeah. Like three to five minutes. Kind of weak recommendation, but <laughs> it's stronger <laughs> than it used to be. So literature out there is actually a little bit different depending on if you're adult or kid or out of hospital or in hospital, because there's literature for out of hospital cardiac arrest that more frequently dosed epinephrine tends to lead to better outcomes. Uh, but there's literature for inpatient cardiac arrest, in hospital cardiac arrest in children that more widely spaced out epinephrine is actually beneficial. So I think it just adds to the general gestalt of we don't no. <laughs> so, as Jared Mosier has said in the past, uh, you know, if you don't know how to cook, then you follow the cookbook uh, step by step and you don't veer off the recipe. But 
if you're a French pastry chef, you just kind of do what you know is right because this is what you do. Um, so if you've been running enough codes that you can kind of look at the situation and say, I think this one's a little bit different, then you can make your adjustments based off of the guidelines, not the protocols, not the uh, policies. There's no AHA policy or mandate for how to run these codes. These are guidelines based on best available evidence. If you want to hear, we, uh, we did a podcast several years ago on uh, the ACLS guidelines back in 2015, and we interviewed uh, Art Sanders, who uh, was one of the initial people, uh, did the original research on continual ch on uh, uh, chest compression only CPR, and he had a fascinating uh, opinion and or kind of a history of how this came about. And he said, look, none of these were randomized controlled trials uh, trying to figure out what we're doing. Like we just tried to do the best we could, and we're going to continue to build on them over time. Uh, one thing I'll add on the frequency of dosing, uh, occasionally I'll see people forego giving push dose epinephrine because the patient's on an epi drip. Um, it's important to keep in mind those differences in concentration and doses. Yeah. Um, typically with an epi drip where it's usually eight milligrams and 250 mils at our shop, and it may be running at a rate of 10 micrograms per minute. Uh, the equivalent of giving uh, a milligram every three minutes would be running it at 333 mics per minute. So if you have an epi drip running at 10 mics per minute, it is not the same as giving a code dose epi every three to five minutes. I would um, change my frequency of epinephrine um, if we had more info on the patient. So there is some uh, kind of observational data that shows that if you put an art line in these patients and you measure their diastolic blood pressure, that might be a surrogate for your coronary perfusion pressure. And as Kate mentioned earlier, if your goal is to provide blood flow to the heart, if you already have a really high diastolic blood pressure, then maybe epinephrine isn't helping you that much versus if you have a low diastolic blood pressure during resuscitation, then maybe your epinephrine is going to help uh, provide that blood flow to the heart. But I know we're just not really doing that in practice at our institution. Very hard to get an art line in a patient without a pulse. Not impossible. And in fact, oftentimes, if you're trying to get a central line, you may accidentally get an art line. Don't pull out, like leave it there, get your art line because that's also beneficial. And now you got a landmark to get your central line. Um, so uh, since Epi is our go-to, there are other adjuncts that we can use, uh, but there's none that are really recommended in PEA. Atropine is out uh, there, uh, you know, used to be, uh, we would give a lot of other things, uh, that are also on the table. They're just not recommended. Epi is the only recommended one, but what do we actually do in real practice? We still sometimes give atropine, not often, uh, we'll give bicarb, we'll give calcium, we'll give naloxone. Sometimes in a last ditch effort, we'll just throw some TPA at them just to see, you know, um, but, uh, of any of these meds, since none of them have strong enough uh, evidence-based uh, evidence bases to make them fully recommended, any of these meds going to be useful in a code, or is it really just all theoretical? Depends on the situation. I think none of them have panned out with the studies that were done because the studies are typically either observational, looking at sort of a mixed uh, heterogeneous cohort of patients who are in cardiac arrest or the studies were done in 10 pigs 30 years ago, um, there's just not that much evidence to support using um, any of these adjuncts in every patient who comes in in cardiac arrest. Mm -hmm. And I think this is where, as, as Dan mentioned, you want to you want to use a, a patient-specific approach, right? If you have something in your gestalt that makes you think that this patient is in cardiac arrest because of a massive PE, 
maybe TPA shouldn't be that last ditch effort, right? Maybe you should give mm-hmm. it really early in a resuscitation attempt. Um, if you think, if you see a big bulging AV fistula and you think in the patient coded before they could get dialysis, then maybe hyperkalemia acidosis should be pretty high in your differential and that's going to change your management. Uh, but just throwing these, you know, randomly at all comers probably isn't going to give you a whole lot of benefit. Yeah, I agree with that too. Cause you know, with TPA, we could probably spend eight podcasts talking about it. Um, with, <laughs> yeah, been there, done that. Um, and, you know, if we actually think that that is what's happening, that's, I want that to be one of the first things that we start giving, um, just because it takes so long to actually kick in and have an effect. And you have to continue chest compressions for mm-hmm. a considerable amount of time after the fact. So, yeah, it really just depends on what's happening with the patient and what the story was. Yeah, I think, I think all, all these are pretty theoretical unless you have very specific patient factors in front of you. I think you can use two schools of thought here. I think you can be a minimalist and, you know, provide epinephrine if you want to or not. And then after that, you could make the argument that, well, they've been coding for a while. They're acidotic. Here's bicarbon calcium. Maybe they're, they were opioid overdose. Here's naloxone. Maybe they're hypoglycemic. Here's dextrose. I think you can just do the shotgun approach um, or you could do that more minimalist. I'm going to try to pinpoint what's going on and try to um, figure out um, what I can do for that specific issue. Um, if you really want to piss me off, at least during a code, I won't tell you I'm mad, but if you say 20 minutes into a code, hey, let's try TPA, I'm going <laughs> to probably tell you we have a TPA shortage. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell them the trick, man. <laughs> we don't have that. That is fantastic. <laughs> No, that would that would upset me. T- I I do get actually very frustrated with that. Um, yeah. Because if, if you've got a cardiac arrest for twenty minutes, even you know in hospital cardiac arrest for twenty minutes, if yeah. they're still in PEA, you're not uh, your survival. Uh, your survival to a functional, neurologically intact discharge is exceedingly low. Um, even in children, uh, even though we'll, we'll work kids for forever. Uh, but I, I think the important thing that you all mentioned is that, you know, try to get the details of the case that lets you know that you're going to have an antidote for this arrest. If this was a hypoxic arrest that happened because the person has bad pulmonary edema, well, then you need to work on their oxygen. I mean, pharmaceuticals are just going to try to bridge you until you can get their oxygen back up. If they overdosed on uh, opioids, then do you know break that and try to get them breathing again and try to get their sympathetic tone back up but mm-hmm. uh the other thing that art sanders had mentioned in this podcast is that you know you there's no one drug no one protocol that's going to treat all of cancer mm-hmm. like cancer is not one entity it's multiple entities and cardiac arrest is the end result of all disease so there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all treatment for cardiac arrest. It's the ultimate outcome of all disease. And so you have to figure out what disease led you there so that you can work backwards. It's very tenant in its uh, you know approach of you have to know the beginning in order to fix the end to work backwards. You'd need Christopher Nolan to help you out on these codes. So at the end of the ringdown, uh, Dr. Dan Gerald, despite his best efforts, is in the lead with a score of 32, <laughs> Dr. Chris Edwards at uh, 24 and Kate Maurizio at 21. So thank you, Dr. Maurizio. Yeah. You, we are, 
We are still I'm going. So we are dang. not done. With these scores, we are going to move on to the workup. During the workup, points will be awarded for prioritization of interventions backed by evidence-based medicine. Points will be deducted for poorly defensible workups or treatments. A uh, 64-year-old male brought in by cardiac arrest, witnessed at a restaurant, chest pain prior to collapse, received bystander CPR and PEA arrest on initial monitor rhythm. <clears throat> he received two doses of epinephrine en route and has a finger stick blood sugar of 168, has a history of diabetes, takes aspirin and insulin. Um, he uh, has a temperature of 36.6. He's pulseless. He has no palpable or no achievable blood pressure. He's apneic, unconscious, unresponsive with sluggish pupils, uh, femoral pulse. It's palpable with compressions, PEA on the monitor. He's getting bagged. He has a, a non-distended soft abdomen, uh, normal bulk and tone and a GCS of three. Uh, you start running your uh, resuscitation in the ED. He gets a round of epi in the ED. And suddenly someone notices a rhythm change to a wide complex tachycardia. They immediately tried defibrillation, which is unsuccessful. And the patient remains in the same wide complex tachycardia. So as you see that wide complex tachycardia, which med are you grabbing for to try to help abort the VT? Amio. Kate says Amio. Okay, you get points for being the first one to answer unabashedly, <laughs> bravely. I can tell you which one I'm not grabbing, and that's procainamide. So okay. <laughs> there's a reason it's not on the ACLS algorithm. There was a study in 2010 showed a decreased survival to hospital discharge with procainamide compared to everything else. So uh, definitely not. It may have a role in emergency medicine, but it ain't this. I think the pendulum swinging here, I still think, especially in adults, amiodarone is going to be your first line agent for uh, refractory VTAC, VFib that, you know, doesn't respond to shocks or vasopressors. Um, but there has been some more literature recently. There's a specific study in pediatrics showing lidocaine might be beneficial. Um, but right now I still think the consensus in adults is amiodarone first line. Um, but I still think lidocaine is an option, especially if you don't have am amiodarone around. Um, but yeah, amiodarone is going to be my first line in this case, if they don't have a pulse. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, that study of lidocaine for VT in kids done here at the University of Arizona. Yes, sir. The there's was two studies done um, that actually showed amio had slightly higher success rates, but the one of those studies showed that lido had survival to discharge, I think, and then amio had lower incidence of side effects. But either way, in adults, I do agree with Dan that um, amio is going to be your first line. Excellent. Two papers, double the points. So yeah, uh, there was a couple studies that came out like early 2000s that showed MEO uh, maybe a little bit preferable to lidocaine in, uh, in the pre-hospital setting in terms of survival to hospital uh, admission, no difference in survival to hospital discharge. Mm -hmm. uh, but those were really the ones that led to the higher level recommendation for MEO. And I think the ACLS guidelines changed in response to this uh, Rock Alps study. Um, yeah. and, and that one... Uh, compared amio, lido, and placebo, uh, showing a similar rate of survival uh, with amio and lido compared, uh, compared to each other. Better, they were both better than placebo. But the interesting thing about that study is they actually used a different formulation of amio than what we currently use. So the amio that was used in those early 2000 studies that showed it was a little bit better than lido 
is the one that was formulated uh, using polysorbate. And the one that was studied in the, in the Rock Alp study is the, the other one that doesn't have the polysorbate. Um, so it's, it's interesting that they didn't find, they found kind of different things um, because of that excipient that shouldn't be pharmacologically active, but kind of is. So the polysorbate caused some vasodilation and some decrease in, in blood pressure. Um, the newer formulation was supposed to not cause that, but it also didn't show the same benefits uh, compared to lidocaine. So kind of interesting. I don't know. So mm -hmm. I agree with these guys. Amio is probably my go-to, but I'm not closed-minded towards lidocaine. And if evidence continues to come out to support uh, the use of lido in adults, I could definitely see that pendulum swinging. Uh, also, the study, the Rock Alp study, had like ten times the patient of uh, ten times the patients of all the previous studies. So maybe there just really isn't that big of a difference between them. When I was a, a new med student, uh, this is how far the gu guidelines have changed of actually taking some of the stuff we used to do out because what do we like to do as medical providers? Something. We're doers. We want to fix something. And sometimes like by trying to do more, we're probably impeding some of the outcomes. So the uh, mnemonic that I was taught as a brand new first year medical student for treating VT was shock, 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 everybody shock, little shock, big shock, mama shock, papa shock. That was stacked shocks, first of all, which we don't do at all anymore. You would shock them three times in a row, no hands on, no chest compressions. What we've learned is that you drop your coronary perfusion pressure with, with time off the chest. You really should minimize time off the chest. We allow for five seconds, but if you can do no seconds, that is preferable. So now it's shock them, get right back on the chest and get going, or put a towel between you and the patient, or just recognize that you really, it doesn't transduce the same way as long as you're not making contact uh, with the leads. Um, and it was uh, stacked shocks, epinephrine, and then another shock, lidocaine shock, bertillium shock, magnesium shock, procainamide shock. I have never seen bertillium used in clinical practice in any setting of the hospital. I think these are just, these are old ways that we used to do these things, but that was the absolute way that it had to be. And since I started medical school, it, we've gone so far past that. So it's interesting. So I think we're about the same age. And I, I remember hearing about how complicated ACLS was when I was in pharmacy school. And then when I took it, I, I took the simplified version, right? So there was no bertillium or stack shocks or anything like that. I'm a little disappointed that I never got to play with bertillium because it sounds super cool. Um, it actually like it should sparkle or something like something yeah. really neat. So. And it kind of does. So it, it it blocks the release of norepinephrine peripherally and then also acts as a, a class three antiarrhythmic. Um, and so it should have some pretty interesting effects in the setting of cardiac arrest. Uh, unfortunately, it was, you know, developed in the late sixties um, and then like became basically unavailable from any manufacturer in the U S in the nineties. So like we never really got to do good science with it to see what it could potentially do, uh, what benefits it may be able to have. And I've never had the opportunity to use it clinically, but it sounds super cool. Um, but I'm glad they took it off the algorithms because, you know, there's no evidence that it's beneficial and it's not available. So it's a good history lesson. I, I read recently it is available in the U S now. Yeah. What? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. They just started remaking it recent, very recently. 
the stack doses of epi that they used to do back in the day definitely not coming back so <laughs> Um, you know, if anything, as, as we've kind of discussed, the pendulum is probably swinging the other way. Uh, but back in, in the old, old, old ACLS algorithms, they used to go as high as like seven milligrams of FEF, <laughs> uh, which is just insane. And the, there's evidence. Thankfully, as soon as they studied that, they said, well, this is a terrible idea. We're going to knock this off. But there's there's evidence against that high dose FEF, and that's why it fell off the algorithm. All right. So last question. Uh, mag sulfate. Mag has all kinds of great uses. It's the ketamine of elements. It just seems to do so many different things that we like. It stops labor, stops preeclampsia. It will uh, help with your asthma and it will stop your dysrhythmia in uh, certain events. So any harm with just loading with mag as a precaution, Kate? I don't think so, no. Because um, if, if it's, because when we use mag, particularly for TASADs. Um, technically it's for prevention and not necessarily treatment, but if that patient gets out of that rhythm. But when we give it, we give it regardless of mag levels. So I really don't see any harm if it's something else that they feel strongly about. Um, so I, it's not, unless they're, so if a patient has TASADs, obviously I'm gonna recommend it, but if I'm probably not going to otherwise, but if someone really wants to do it, I'm not gonna say no. I agree a hundred percent. So it's not going to hurt. Evidence shows it's not going to help. Um, they've, they've tried throwing mag versus placebo into sort of a, some version of the ACLS guidelines and it didn't show any effect on um, any meaningful outcome, specifically in VTAC, BFib uh, arrests. It was a small study. I think it was you know under a hundred patients, but, but no benefit in clinical trials, no real harm to trying it, but unless they have asthma, preeclampsia, torsades, it's probably not going to do a whole hell of a lot. So at the end of the workup, Dr. Chris Edwards and Dr. Kate Maurizio are tied in the lead at 38 apiece with Dr. Joe at 37. Uh, Daniel, we appreciate all of your input. Uh, it's wonderful to have all three of you clinically in the ED, but we are going to go forward in the dispo with Dr. Edwards and Dr. Maurizio. During the dispo, points are awarded for a concise and convincing admission call or a clear layperson-level discussion of the discharge instructions. Admission calls should be top-down with the most important information first, riding the fine line between overselling and underselling the admission. Discharge instructions should include shared decision-making, follow-up instructions, and explicit return precautions. And of course, evidence-based medicine is always welcome. So after good CPR, uh, good compressions, uh, good oxygenation, and an antiarrhythmic load, the patient converts to a sinus rhythm, and you get a perfusing pressure and the oft-sought-after retain of spontaneous circulation. So, uh, Dr. Uh, Maurizio, uh, you're going to be asked first by this brand-new intern who has never really run a code before. Uh, I, I don't want this to ever happen again. Like we're back. Uh, we got the patient back. I've never seen him come back before. I've never been responsible for them coming back before. Like how, do, what do I do to make sure that they don't code again? Like, do I just start them on some medications like right now? Like, do we start them on a drip or do I just keep giving them pushes of epi? What do I do? I don't want them to code again. Okay. One, take three very deep breaths. Two, I'll start an epi drip. Um, we can start in amyo loads that seem to do something and it might not hurt to do vaso <laughs> drip. 
So do all three of those like, yes. Like, uh, okay. So, so we got, I've only got the IO still. So is that going to be okay. okay? Yeah. Okay. So I can just put them all three through the IO and that'll go. Okay. Uh, let's just do the pressers first. Okay. Should I get more IVs? Yes, please. <laughs> okay. All right. So maybe I'll have a nurse see if, if they can get another IV and then like, what do I, what do I do with the epi? Like how much epi do I give? Um, I would start at 10 mics per minute. Okay. So 10 mics per minute per kilogram mm -hmm. or just 10? Nope. In the ED, we don't do weight-based just because sometimes we don't have the luxury of knowing how much our patients exactly weigh. So we'll just do, it's just going to be mics per minute. Okay. Okay. So nurse, you heard that, right? So 10 mics per minute, just like Dr. Maurizio said. Thank you, Dr. Maurizio. And then, yeah. um, and, and then the amio, we gave them, we gave okay. them 300, I think. Yep. We gave 300. And then how much now? We can start a load and that that'll be the one milligram per minute. Okay. Hold on. I'm writing this we'll, all down. Okay. And you don't have to rush uh, to get other access because all three of those are compatible. Oh, okay. All right. Good. Good. And then uh, the vasopressin, do we have that? Is that in the code card or do I need to? No, like... okay. I'll go make that for you right now. Oh, you'll make it. You can make it. Yeah. Oh, you guys are incredible. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you, Dr. Maritzi. I'll go put those orders in. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. I'll Excellent. double check to make sure they're entered correctly. Excellent. Okay. And then uh, same intern comes back about a minute later and finds Dr. Edwards and says, uh, so my attending told me I have to intubate this patient, uh, but I'm, I'm still worried that they're going to code again. So is there something I can give them so that they'll go to sleep? and I can intubate them, but they're not gonna code again. Well, I can't guarantee that they're not gonna code again, but we can oh try to prevent that as much as possible. Okay. So I think that in this situation, we've got a really tenuous patient. We don't know a lot about what's going on. So we wanna use the safest drugs that we have available, and that's gonna be Atomidate and Rocuronion. Okay. So um, I would give him Atomidate 0.3 mg per keg. I didn't see a weight on this guy, but he looks like he's around 70 kilos. Let's do 20 milligrams of Atomidate. For Rock, I want you to get the best intubating conditions you can. That's gonna be a dose of one to 1.2 mg per kilo. Again, he looks like he's about 70 kilos. So we'll give him 70 milligrams of Rock Uranium and that should, uh, should do the trick for you. But if I don't get it on the first time, he's still gonna be paralyzed. So should I use Sucks instead? I would not recommend using sucks for a couple of different reasons. So this guy just coded for a long time. We don't know what his potassium is. I'm going to guess that it's high. Right. Um, if his potassium is high and then we get a little bit of an increase with the sucks that we give him, we could potentially uh, kick him into a hyperkalemia that could induce another arrhythmia. And then we're right back to where we started, which is no good. Um, the other reason why I would argue that rock versus sucks it, you're going to get this airway either way, right? Like any way this shakes out, there's once you decide to intubate this patient, they're going to get intubated. It's not like you're going to bag them through the succinylcholine. And then once the succinylcholine wears off, he's going to be back to normal, able to breathe on his own and not need an airway, right? So if he's paralyzed for seven minutes and you're not able to get the airway in that seven minutes, we're going to need to paralyze him again. Well, something else happens for you to get that airway, whether it's letting your attending give it a shot, surgical airway, whatever it is. So if you paralyze them with rock, you know they're going to be paralyzed 
well you get the airway okay all right well and then once he's under in the icu we always put him on propofol and fentanyl so i guess we'll do that right but then but then That's, i don't want him to code again i agree we definitely should not let this guy code again um let's get his blood pressure dialed in with uh, the recommendations that dr Maurizio made I think those are going to work really well. And we can always titrate the epinephrine up uh, if we need to in order to stabilize the patient's blood pressure. Um, but I think we can probably do very gentle sedation uh, with propofol with the goal of increasing that as we achieve hemodynamic stability. All right. He's not really doing anything right now. Is there any reason to put him on meds at all? That's a really good question. And then we're going to kind of <laughs> get into uh, sort of philosophy and, and metaphysics and consciousness. I can't, and all this. I can't do metaphysics. I have, uh, that, I, I haven't been to Sedona. My crystal's not charged. I so what you want to do is go to, go to the OR and find Dr. Stu Hammerhoff and ask him about consciousness. <laughs> it's going to be okay. great. Um, no, no. Just right, I'm going to go um, talk to Dr. Hammerhoff. I'll be back. <laughs> really interesting stuff. Watch some of his YouTube videos. Amazing. Anyhow. Um, like, we don't know if this patient is aware of what's going on. We can, it's the safest thing to do is to assume that this patient has some level of awareness right now. And we don't want him to be aware of the fact that he's paralyzed. So we should do sedation, at least for the duration of the paralytic, even if it doesn't look like he's doing a whole heck of a lot, because we can't say definitively that this patient has no brain activity. Um, after the paralytic has worn off, um, you can certainly make the case to start weaning them off of the sedation because um, at that point, you're just trying to make the patient comfortable um, and you'll have reliable indicators of, of comfort. But as long as they're paralyzed, you should make sure that they're adequately sedated. Okay. All right. Uh, so let's get that stuff together and I'm going to go figure out which hand I hold the laryngoscope in. I'll be back. <laughs> All right. Thank you, all three of you, uh, Chris, Kate, and Daniel. You've been awesome. I really appreciate your perspective on this because I think on the last uh, episode, we kind of glossed over the drugs and talked about them a little bit, but doing this deep dive into the drugs, I think is very, very helpful. And it shows to everyone listening just how valuable you all are. So uh, uh, that was an excellent answer to a poor worried intern. Um, I'm going to give this win to Kate because of the initial recommendations. Take three big breaths. All of you <laughs> interns that are listening, you've got time. You've got help. Take a breath. You're going to do great. So Kate, you are the winner of this month's episode. <laughs> you proceed over to the art of medicine and you get to soapbox on whatever you care to do so in the field of emergency medicine. Can I share the soapbox yes. after 30 seconds? Oh, sweet. Okay. Cause I want my colleagues to go off for a few seconds as well. Um, but I'll go first since I'm technically the winner, which I really appreciate you guys letting me win. That was really sweet. I will go off about hypertonic saline. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's really short and sweet. Uh, if hypertonic is your primary concern, I, this is my extreme statement. If hypertonic is your primary concern, then you really don't know what you're doing. Um, only because hypertonic is really only indicated for patients that have signs of potential herniation. And obviously we have limited resources in the emergency department. And so we rely on other clinical indicators of that. And so if their GCS is above eight um, and they don't require intubation, 
it's not declining, they don't have signs or symptoms, you know, Cushing's response or anything like that, then you really, I really don't feel as though a hypertonic is needed. And I think we tend to overemphasize that a little bit, um, not necessarily in the emergency department, but I think we have a good grasp on it. This is more just knowledge for everyone going out into the field and practicing. But yeah, look at your patient and see what's going on. It's really only indicated for those very, very sick patients um, that are, have a declining GCS and aren't doing well and have those signs and symptoms of herniation. All right, I'm going to pass it off to. All right, and Dr. Gerald. So my soapbox is uh, going to be on uh, post-intubation management of our patients, mostly because we're going to have a lot of new interns coming in quickly. Um, so hopefully they'll listen to this. Um, but I see a lot of providers utilize uh, rocuronium a lot because it's easy. It's simple. You don't need to think about your patient. You don't need to know anything about them. You can give it to anybody. But the downstream effect of that is we have no idea how awake our patient is after intubation. So if you're unwilling to give appropriate sedation and analgesia for your patient, rock is probably not going to be the go-to that you should use. So I think especially during your early years, you should get a lot of experience using succinylcholine, try to get an idea of what patients typically need to keep them sedated after you intubate them. So then when you do give them rock and you face that patient who you just gave Narcan to, or they're hypotensive, you have the guts to give them what they need despite not having to do it because they're moving in front of you. And so I think that's one of the biggest impacts we have at the bedside. And it's not just our providers, it's not just you know EM physicians, but if you look at the literature um, all over, we really struggle with this as a whole in medicine. Um, and so I think it's important just to kind of get that grasp um, early on in your career, because what you learn early, I think sticks with you. And if you just rock everybody, I guarantee you, you're going to have some patients who are awake, but uh, paralyzed. Uh, thank you for sharing the soapbox. That's very kind of you. I was hoping <laughs> I was going to do the same if I won. So thank you. Um, it's, it's that the EM none, none of the other doc, none of the EM docs do that. So <laughs> um, my, my quick, like two second soapbox thing would be uh, since we have a pretty large contingent of physicians and physician learners listening, um, if you guys like what we do, if you guys like having emergency medicine pharmacists at your shop, once you get out into practice, please advocate for emergency medicine pharmacists. If you guys end up somewhere where you don't have an EM pharmacist, harass the director of pharmacy, tell them how great it was having them at where you trained, show them a lot. There's a body of evidence out there showing all these different ways that EM pharmacists can help uh, elevate the, the practice of emergency medicine and help to prevent med errors and improve outcomes and do all these wonderful things. If you need any help with that evidence, if you're trying to advocate for EM pharmacists, let me know. I can definitely help you with that. Um, but yeah, uh, if you guys like what we do, please, please, please uh, get out there and advocate for us. Chris, couldn't echo that uh, anymore, uh, how wonderful it is to have EM pharmacists uh, that are helping out, uh, how much of an impact you all make. Uh, we appreciate you clinically. We appreciate you coming here. I'm also going to give a shout out to our EM seniors that are graduating that uh, helped us, floated us through this pandemic. Uh, we appreciate you all. Good luck to all of you as you go out on your careers. Welcome to our new interns. This is a bittersweet time of year, uh, but we're very excited to see all the change that's happening. And we will talk to everybody next month. <laughs>